Morning, church. I want to add my good morning to those of you who are watching at home. I, I have the same concerns. Kenny was reading my mail. I have the same concerns for us as a church in these unique times. Some of us are gathered here. Some of us are gathered at home. And yet, we're still the church, right? Because a physical location is not what makes us a church. It's the body and blood of Christ that, that binds us together as a group of people. Being together is crucial, but the church is universal. And so, welcome to you at home. Welcome to you as you are here. I'm excited to jump back into our series in the book of Titus. So you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we're going to look into Titus chapter 2 this morning. So I did some research this week on U.S. Navy SEALs. I find myself constantly drawn to and intrigued by these men who seem to have superhuman strength to accomplish incredible things. Just to get into training, just to, just to enter into the process of maybe becoming a SEAL, you have to qualify in so many different ways. You have to be the right age. You have to have the right eyesight. You have to have the right intelligence. You have to pass intensive physical exercises just to get into the training. Once you make it into BUDS, their basic training program, it's then that the real fun starts. So now you have to go even more intense in the exercises. There's things like drown your feet and give you all of these challenges underwater that you have to do without dying. The surf test which you've seen, probably many of us have seen. That's where the guys are all on the, the waves uh, in the ocean. They're locking arms, and the cold water waves are just crashing over them. They call that surf torture. Then there's hell week, which is exactly as it sounds. It's a week of hell. Through the course of five or six days, they get a total of maybe four hours of sleep, and they constantly have to improve their times in very, very extreme conditions, doing very, very dangerous things. Now, if you get through hell, which is when most people completely drop out of the program, that's where most men tap out. If you get through that, then you go on to even more intense air combat training, land combat training, sea combat training. And if you finally get through that, then you officially become a Navy SEAL. And you get even more intense training, and you go out and you do things that most of us never know about, most of us would never dream of doing, they're doing them all the time, accomplishing incredible things. Now here's how this connects. Too often, I think, that in the Christian life, most of us see Navy SEALs like we see the church. In other words, most of us see the real work of the kingdom of God, the real dangerous stuff of being a Christian, the real work in God's family, that gets done by the select few. The real work, the, the, the ministry that gets done, that gets done by the trained professionals. If the mission of God is truly going to be accomplished, it's going to be accomplished by the special ops type Christians. 
those who are bad enough, those who are dedicated enough, those who are well-trained, those are the people that God really uses to get his kingdom work done. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the Bible leads us to believe? Let's read right here in Titus chapter 2. Let's see. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friend and co-laborer in Christian ministry, Titus, writes these words. This is God's word. This is God's word to us. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. God, as we look into your word this morning, I pray simply that we would see in this text the high calling that you give to each one of us, the high calling to display your beauty and your saving grace to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So only the best of the best become Navy SEALs. Only the select few. But in the church, it's not that way. It's not the select few that accomplish the mission. You see, the mission of God will not be accomplished so long as the people of God think that it's the job of just the select few. The mission of God, rather, is accomplished when the people of God, every single one of us, live to show the beauty of God. The mission of God accomplished when the people of God, every single one of us, live in such ways that we display the beauty of God to a watching world. That's what this passage is showing us. I'll summarize it in a simple equation. What Paul seems to be saying here is sound doctrine, healthy teaching from God's Word, the Bible, sound doctrine, plus... Faithful application equals cultural transformation. Okay? Sound doctrine plus faithful application and practical ways in each one of our lives equals cultural transformation. Remember what we learned last week. The Cretan society was well known for all kinds of bad things. They were lazy. They were drunks. They were immoral. They were greedy. And Paul's, Paul's conclusion is, this is a great place to plant a church. 
These are the exact type of people we want to be with. And Paul's aim, the aim whenever the gospel goes forward, because Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God on earth, the aim of planting churches into preaching the gospel is that people's lives would be transformed, that families would be transformed, that communities would be transformed, that societies would be transformed. That's what Jesus came to do. So Paul here, in response to what the false teachers were doing, which we learned about last week, who were coming into who? Who were they upsetting? Verse 11, look at your Bibles. Who were these false teachers upsetting? Whole households, whole families. So what Paul is doing is he's reversing the mess that those guys were making, and he's reclaiming the household roles of the day. He's saying to men and to women and to household servants, there's a better way. Jesus came to transform you. And by transforming you and your lives and your homes, your community is going to be transformed. Sound doctrine plus faithful application equals cultural transformation. That's it. That's what's right here. I know that many of you, like us, like us as pastors, like us as a couple, like us as a community, are thinking through what? What is going on right now? And maybe we're asking questions like, what, what does the, the world, what does our community, what does society, what does our confused, our divided, our overwhelmed, our angry, our upset culture need from me right now? What does it need from the church? What does it need from Christians? Here's what it doesn't need. It doesn't need something new and novel. The culture right now doesn't need for us to give it all of the answers, because guess what? We don't have them. The culture right now does not need for us to go on rants and raves on social media with all of our, our opinions on how we feel about the latest news headline. That's not what the culture needs from Christians right now. What the culture needs from us, according to God's word right here, is sound doctrine, faithfully applied in our lives, which will lead to cultural transformation. It's right here. That's what God is showing us. That's what this passage is teaching us. And so Paul lays this out very clearly. He talks to men, he talks to women, and he talks to household servants. Those were the very typical, very common roles in the Greco-Roman household. He's talking to families. He's talking to people just like us. He's reclaiming these ordinary places, these typical common places, and he's saying if sound doctrine is applied there, we're going to change this world. The way we're going to reach the island of Crete is when sound doctrine is faithfully applied there, in these ordinary ways, by ordinary people, just like you and I. So let's start with the men. Paul starts with the men. That's where we're going to start this morning. He calls older men to be a number of things. This is, this is the life transformed by the power of Jesus and the Spirit of God living in men. This is what God produces. They're to be sober-minded. Older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be clear-headed. 
They're to be thinking clearly about all kinds of things. They're not to be fuzzy-minded by constant abuse of substances. They're supposed to be thinking about life in a clear way, calculated way, thinking through things in a logical, reasonable way. They're to be dignified, sensible. They're to live in such a way where, you know what, after living a lot of years, I realize that there's a good way and a bad way to live life. And I've learned from a lot of mistakes, and so now I'm trying to live a good way of life. They're sensible. And the way that they live attracts the honor from other people who look at their lives and think, perfect, no, but this guy, he knows what he's doing. He's sensible. He's dignified. They're called to be self-controlled. Older men, according to Paul, have learned the blessing and the reward from being self-disciplined. They know that unbridled desires and cravings and, and uh, impulses, unchecked, lead to destruction. So they've learned the blessing and the reward of curbing those desires, being self-controlled in all variety of ways in life. Paul goes on then to say, what are the... What are the spiritual aspects, the spiritual characteristics that undergird those qualities? It says it right here. Love, faith, love, and steadfastness. Those are the spiritual qualities that undergird this type of behavior. He's sound, he's healthy in faith, which means he has a healthy, vital relationship trusting in God. He has a relationship that his love for God is translated into his love for other people, namely his wife, his kids, and the people that live in his home. He's steadfast, which means when he encounters trials, he's able to look through the trials with hope and patience, knowing that God's going to get something done here. And so he keeps on going. Now, this is in complete contrast to the typical ways that older men lived in Crete. Complete contrast. Not unlike our day, when you're retired and old, now's the time to finally check out and live life all for yourself. Right now is the time not to try to discipline yourself. Now is the time to let yourself enjoy whatever pleasure you may want. And you know what? I've earned it. Because I've worked hard to get here, and I've waited a long time for this. Now, is it wrong? Is it wrong when you're retired to enjoy the unique benefits and blessings and freedoms that come from being retired? Absolutely not. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is coming against is an attitude of life that says life is all about me. I'm going to live however I want because I've made it this far and I've deserved it. Paul says, no, that, that's not... That's not that's not the life controlled by sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, faithfully applied, older in life, actually leads to a type of maturity that realizes that, you know what, no matter how old I am, life is not ultimately about myself. Life is about other people. Life is about the example, the power of my example in the lives of my community. Maturity is recognizing and seizing that opportunity. So maturity is not seeing the world as if what the world can do for me. It's not a consumeristic mindset. It's what can I do to serve other people? It's what can the church gain from me loving other people and serving other people? What can my family gain, even in my old age, from learning to serve and to love them? That's what maturity looks like. 
Maturity seizes the opportunity to impact the next generation by the power of your example. Older men, do you realize the power of your example? The Last Dance, which is a popular documentary right now on Netflix, which is about the the Chicago Bulls in the late 90s, unsurprisingly features Michael Jordan in a lot of ways. Michael Jordan, as his teammates are constantly speaking and being interviewed about what it was like to play on the team with Jordan, spoke often of his example. So he was the one to show up on time or early for practice. He was the one to give it 110%. He was the one to stay after practice, continuing to do things to improve his game. So when he rode his teammates, which he did, when he got on their backs about playing hard at practice or in the game, which he did, none of his teammates responded to Michael Jordan and said, hey, why don't you worry about yourself? Because he was. The power of his example gave him a platform to challenge his teammates in such a way where they got better and flourished because of the discipline that he learned to live his life by. Older men, you have the same exact opportunity. Will your name be in the lights? Not in the NBA. But in the kingdom of God, God will honor your example the way that you use it to influence the next generation. Do you live by grace with this reality. This is what Paul is calling older men to. Younger men. He speaks to younger men as well. He goes on to address Titus and the younger men. Younger men are to follow the example of the older men in this summarizing way. Younger men are to be men of self-control. That's a summarizing way of saying, just like I've been talking to the older men, Titus, And just like I've been talking to the older men, younger men of the church, you too are to live lives that are self-controlled and dignified, sober-minded. Titus is called to be the same model of good works, to have things in his teaching, character traits in his teaching and his lifestyle, just like the older men do. Now, I want to make one observation here that I think is important for our church right now. Notice where Titus is included here. Titus is included in the instructions to whom? Younger men. Okay, so this means that Titus was likely 20 or 30 years old. And not only was Titus, like Timothy, sent by Paul. Timothy was sent to Ephesus. Titus was sent to Crete. Timothy and Titus were sent to those places not just to be pastors. They were to be pastors of pastors. Because Titus was left in Crete and, Paul, and Timothy was left in Ephesus to train older men, older women, younger men, younger women, to train and equip the church and then to move on so that they could go out and plant other churches. They were fulfilling an, an apostolic delegated role. So these young men were occupying significant roles of responsibility. Now, does BGC need older, seasoned men who have lived a lot of life and can help us apply God's word to our lives? Yes, we do. And thankfully, we have those men. And Lord willing, we'll appoint more of those men to pastoral roles. 
But from the Bible, what we see is that it's not an either or. It's not either we appoint older men or either we appoint younger men. It's a both and. Younger men are supposed to, according to God's word, occupy significant roles of responsibility. Likewise, so are older men. Do you see that here? I think that's important for our church to understand as we move forward in appointing elders to this church. We need both. And that's why team ministry is so crucial because the older men and the younger men work together to gain collectively from our collective responsibilities and experiences. That's important for us. We need to see that in the Bible. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He's reclaiming the mess that was made in Crete by the false teachers who by their bad examples were leading people, men and women, to follow that negative example. He's reclaiming them. He's calling to men older and men younger to apply sound doctrine in their lives because he really believes that is how Crete and that is how our society is going to be transformed. Sound doctrine plus faithful application equals cultural transformation. Verse 8 shows that. Paul is concerned not only of those inside the church, he's also aware of the outside world watching on. He's, he's trying to get these men to commend God, to live in such a way that he commends God, they commend God to the watching world who's observing them and criticizing them. Now, I am so thankful I was regularly this week thanking God that he's brought men like this to our church. These are men I want to be like when I grow up. Don Cole, who I wish was here so I could look him in the eye, Don Cole is a man, he's the busiest retired man that I know. You mostly don't see what he does, but he is constantly serving families and constantly serving the church and constantly using his gifts to serve people in the time that God has given to him. And he does it joyfully, like seemingly effortlessly, like I wish I could be like him. Steve Herder. I was thanking God this week for Steve Herder. Steve, if you're out there, thank you for your example. Steve is a man who loves God's word. He's applied it for many, many years in his life. He's led his family through ups and downs, significant trials and significant seasons of blessing. He's been a faithful, godly husband and father. I want to be like Steve when I grow up. Mike Agard, who has spent hours of his time in this church doing things that most of us don't even know but are constantly benefiting from. We're a healthier church, Mike, because you're a part of it. He's counseling and providing care for people in need. He's using his skill sets to serve in IT. He's doing all of the things that most of us never see, and he does it because he loves Jesus and he loves all of us. I want to be like that when I grow up. Now, these men, I'm sure, would tell us life has not consisted of a few major decisions. I haven't become the man that I've become because of a few key moments in my life. What they, I believe, would tell us is that it's through the course of life thousands and thousands of little decisions thousands of times of deciding to do things a certain way, sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding. They're men of honor today because of thousands of little things in their lives that have led them to this point. 
You know, Michael Jordan focused on the basics. We all know of Michael Jordan, the, the flying through the air from the foul line, dunking the ball over the heads of his opponents. But what we usually don't see is that Michael Jordan was the one to stay after practice, practicing follow shots time and time and time again. Jordan focused on the basics. Men, are we focused on the basics? Are we focused on cultivating a relationship with God by reading his word and by praying? Are we focused on the basics? Are we, are we taking steps to learn how to love? If we're married, are we taking steps to learn how to love our wives and our children? If we're not married, are we taking steps by God's grace? Are we taking steps to learn how to live, not just for ourselves, but for the good of others? Are we using the gifts that God has given to us to bless other people? Paul does not overcomplicate this. Sound doctrine plus faithful application, that is what's going to lead to community transformation. It's right here. Gentlemen, this is God's plan for us. This is the transformative work of grace that he's going to do in our lives that he calls us by his grace to pursue. Now, how about the ladies? Paul turns from men and he begins to talk with the ladies in the church. In the same way that men are to be example for the younger men, older women are to be examples to the younger women. Older women are called to be reverent. There's a gravitas to older women. And, and to be clear, older men and older women, it's not like they just constantly walk around with like somber looks on their face, always serious. We got to talk about Jesus every time we're together. No. But there's a depth. There's one author said, they take seriously that they belong to God. They learn through a lot of life that in a deep relationship with God, there's a sobriety and a serious and a weightiness that comes and they exude that weightiness. They're not stuffy and sterile, but they're deep. They're deep waters. They're, they're women that you want to be around. He goes on to say that they should not be slanderous. The word slanderous here is oftentimes used in the Bible to describe the devil. So they're not, they're not tearing people down. They're not accusing them falsely. They're not ruining the reputations of other people. They're not addicted, Paul says, to a lot of wine. Do they enjoy a glass of wine? Maybe. But they're not dominated by it. They're not sitting around, drinking all day, boozing it up with their, their lady friends, and tearing people down, and talking about all the town gossip. That was what was going on in the island of Crete. And Paul said, no, ladies, there's work for you to do. There's significant impact for you to make. Namely, teach the younger women. That's the role. That's the job. That's the responsibility that God is affording to you. Notice something here. Paul is telling Titus. Titus certainly has a role to play. Titus is to teach sound doctrine, but the responsibility primarily for teaching the younger women lies with the older women, not Titus. Two simple reasons. Titus wasn't a woman. <laughs> right? Like, simple reasons. If I'm a woman, I want to hear what it's like to follow Jesus from another woman because men, we don't get it. 
We don't live lives as women. We don't understand the unique challenges that women face. We don't understand the unique seasons of life that you walk through. We don't know what it's like to be a mom. We don't know what it's like to be a wife in the same way that you ladies do. And secondly, if I'm a husband in the church, I don't want Titus spending a lot of time with my wife. I want to be spending time with my wife. Right? Titus, the ladies in the church don't need to be spending time with Titus. He doesn't know what it means to be a woman, and he doesn't need to be schmoozing with the ladies of the church because he needs to be focused on what God's called him to do and the ladies what they're called to do. Obvious. The older women have a role to play in discipling younger women because that's, that's God's plan, and it makes sense. Now let's tackle two potential landmines here. What does Paul mean by women are to be working at home? And what about the submission stuff? Them's fighting words, right? And depending on which circles you, go, you, you run in, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with those kind of words. What is Paul talking about here? This is what leads some to say the Bible is so archaic and out of touch with reality. What's Paul talking about here? First... Stating the obvious, Paul is not writing to a Western society that we all know. Right? He doesn't have Americans in mind when he's writing this letter. He's writing to people in that time and in that age. And it would be typical, it would be common for ladies in Crete to learn what it means to serve in the temples of their island just as kind of part of normal life. Like their duty in life is to learn what it means to serve in these Greco-Roman temples. And what Paul needs to be saying here is, ladies, if you truly want to serve the true God, the God of the Bible, your focus isn't to be in temples, worshiping false gods. Actually, if you want to truly serve God, focus on your homes. That's where service to God is of primary importance. That's how you'll change the next generation. That's what Paul is getting at here. And the main thrust seems to be one of diligence. Remember, the, the Cretans were known to be lazy. And so there's a lot of activity in the verbs that Paul gives here. They're to be working. They're to be kind, which could also be translated as useful. So rather than sitting around with the ladies talking about town gossip, they're to be active. They're to be diligent. They're to be cultivating things in their home, relationships in their home, overseeing the management of their homes. So is it wrong for ladies to work outside of their homes? That's not, I believe, what Paul is saying here at all. In the same way that it's possible for men to be so preoccupied with things outside of the home that they neglect matters in the home, the same is true for women. It's possible as women to be preoccupied with things outside of the home such that your primary responsibility, the things that truly matter, for eternity are neglected because you're not cultivating the relationships in your home that are God-given and meant to impact society. It's sound doctrine, faithfully applied there, that's going to change the world. Think with me about the examples of the Bible over and over and over again of women who have literally changed the course of history because of their godliness at home. Hannah, a woman who devoted her life to God, a woman who desperately wanted to have children but was barren and received ridicule for years. 
Finally, God blessed her with a child, and she said, Lord, thank you, because I love you and because I love your people. I'm going to dedicate this son to the Lord. And Samuel literally changed the course of Israel's history. Mary, a poor, unsuspecting woman in the world's eyes, by faith and devotion to God, accepted God's seemingly crazy plan And she literally mothered the Savior of the world. Eunice and Lois, when Paul was trying to tell Timothy, keep on going, Timothy. You got to keep, I know it's hard. You got to keep on pressing on. Who does he refer Timothy to? Lois and Eunice, his grandmother and mother. Their sincere faith, Timothy. Keep on going. Be like those women. In my own life, Church, I'm telling you, I am who I am today because of godly women whose example made a lasting impact on me. I've told you guys about Mary Jane. Mary Jane lived four doors down from me. She radically and passionately loved Jesus. She used to gather us as kids on a square of concrete on our front porch about this big and feed us popsicles and tell us about Jesus. She had no idea She had no idea 30 years ago the seeds that she was planting in our lives. And she radically changed my life. Her example and the gospel that she preached to me radically changed my life. Some of you ladies right now are teaching little VBS Bible classes to your kids and maybe to your neighbors. And maybe at the end of the day you're thinking, why do I waste my time doing this? This I feel like all I'm doing is wrangling kids and they're not even listening to me. That's probably how Mary Jane felt when she was preaching the gospel to us snotty-nosed kids. Can I encourage you, ladies? God is going to use your efforts in your homes, even if you are single, the, the godliness that you are cultivating, even if you're not a mom and a wife right now, the godliness that you are cultivating right now is going to have lasting impact into eternity that you can't even fathom right now. You're going to be shocked to see what God does in your future. And maybe you're thinking, it's too late for me. My life has passed now. I've wasted too much time. No, it's not. There is always a redemptive nature to God. There's always a way that he's able to use you right where you are, right here, right now, to do things that you cannot even imagine. A life surrendered to God because it's not about us. It's about him. It's about his redeeming power at work in our lives to transform us and to transform society. That's what Paul's getting at here. He tells women to do this. Why? So that the word of God won't be reviled. Again, Paul keeps on coming back to this. He has the watching world in mind as he's teaching into these very typical ordinary roles. How about the S word? How about submission? That's a fun one. So this means, Jason, that wives and women are to be doormats for men, right? This this means that women are somehow second-class citizens. This means that women are inferior to men. Can I just be super clear on this? The Bible never, ever endorses that type of ridiculous thinking. Ever. Ever. If you look closely at the life of Jesus, nobody honored women more than Jesus did, ever. It was totally countercultural. 
the Bible all over the place argues for the equality of men and women under the grace of God. Different roles, but equal as people made in God's image. Women are not in any way inferior to men. So anybody that's using verses like this to be domineering or abusive in your home, there's only one thing for us to do, and that's repent. The Bible is super clear on this. This is not about men being domineering to women at all. The New Testament teaches on submission numerous times, five times at least. The most extensive teaching on submission is in Ephesians chapter 5, and there Paul begins the teaching by saying to all Christians to submit to one another. So in the church, what Paul is saying is that there's not supposed to be any type of one-upmanship. There's not supposed to be any type of arrogant, self-centered ambition that's to be dominating other people. We're all supposed to submit in humility to one another, no matter who we are. Submission in the Bible is actually rooted in God himself. God is three persons in one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Son gets sent by the Father. The Father didn't die for the sins of the world. Jesus did. Jesus submitted himself to the will of God. The Spirit, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to do the will of the Father and the Son. He's in submission to Jesus and the Father. All three persons of the Godhead are equally powerfully God. But yet they submit to one another in mutually exclusive ways that enable them to accomplish the greater good, the greater mission of their plan. The same is to be true in the church. The same is to be true in the home. Submission comes from the word hupotasso, which is a military term that means to arrange under or to organize oneself underneath. It's a military term to say in the same way that a military organizes itself, arranges itself to accomplish the greater good, the greater mission, the same is to be true in the church. The church, with all of our God-given gifts and experiences and talents, are to arrange ourselves under the authority of Christ to accomplish the greater good of God's mission. The same is to be true in our homes. Arranged underneath the authority and the leadership of a godly husband, the woman is to submit her time, her talents, her energies, her skills, her competence, her intelligence, all of those things offered up to the Lord as, an, as a sacrifice to say, I'm going to use these things in my home and outside of my home so that everybody flourishes. That's what's going on here. It's an everyone flourishing type of lifestyle. And they're to do this, Paul says, to men who are lovingly laying down their lives. Submission is dangerous when men are abusing their authority and using it wrongly. But if men are living like Jesus taught us to live, lovingly sacrificing ourselves for the good of our wives, then it's not dangerous for our wives to be submitting to us. Now again, I found myself this week thanking God regularly for the women that he has brought to our church. Andrea Sharp is a woman for years. We've known Andrea for 17, 18 years now, and she's a woman who dedicates herself to knowing and loving God by studying and reading and applying his word. She, she invites other women into her life to, to train them and to teach them what it's like to follow Jesus by doing the same thing. Robin Sheldon. 
Robin Sheldon is an example that I want my wife to be like. Robin has, for years, dedicated herself to serving. She works for her son. That's a humbling position, and she loves doing it. She serves her family. She serves her husband. She is not perfect. None of us are. But she lives in such a way that she derives joy from serving other people. And she's influenced and impacted the next generation because of it. Donna Agar. Donna. Just seeing Donna makes me smile. Donna is probably one of the most joyful people I know. She just, she spills over joy. If you want to get happy, go spend some time with Donna. But she's not just a joyful person. She's been dedicated to following Jesus for years And she, along with her husband, serves this church and serves so many of us so competently, so well, so thoughtfully, not only in her own family, but in the lives of many others. See, sound doctrine, faithfully applied, transforms communities. Do you see that? That is God's way. Ladies, that is what God calls you to. This is what his plan is for your lives. This is how, by grace, you're going to transform generations to come. So Paul addresses men, he addresses women, and lastly, he addresses bondservants or slaves. Just a couple of comments here. First of all, the term slave in Paul's day was very different from the term slave in our day. So the racism and the violence and the, the evil of American slavery is nowhere condoned in the Bible, anywhere. In fact, it's to be spoken against. It's to be condemned. It will be judged. Okay, so there's no race. There's no, anybody who uses verses like this to argue for the racist history of our American slavery is dead wrong. What Paul is likely dealing with here is accusations from the society that are saying, Paul, by making everybody equal in Christ, you're undermining the authority structures of our society. You've got to stop that. Cut that out. You're ruining society. Paul disagrees. No, I'm not trying to ruin society. I'm actually trying to transform society. God's trying to transform society because as men, as women, as household servants, as people who are apprentices, as people who are doctors, who, who, are, who are lawyers, who are government officials, the, the word bondservant in the, in the ancient world was a huge spectrum. There's all kinds of people who were slaves in the Bible that occupied all kinds of positions. What Paul is saying is that if everybody lives the Christ-like way that he and she is called to live, this society will be transformed. Bondservants were to be well-pleasing. They were to be submissive, respectful, not stealing. Paul's saying, don't use your freedom in Christ to live however you want to live. Use your freedom in Christ and your equality with your master to actually live before him in the way that Jesus would live. And by so doing, you're going to show the beauty of God's saving grace. Verse 10. Third time, Paul says this. And everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Over and over and over again, Paul is beating the strong. Sound doctrine plus faithful application equals 
cultural transformation. That's Paul's drum that he's beating over and over and over again. Now, do you ever do this? Do you ever imagine sometimes how Downingtown or how your family or how the community at large or even how our world, how, do you ever imagine it being reached for Christ? And when you imagine, do you do what I do? Do you imagine like maybe a ten time, five, ten times bigger than this and some big name preacher coming in to preach to thousands of people like that's how revival is going to happen? Or do you imagine some crazy miracles that God starts doing in our lives? People are getting healed. People are getting raised from the dead. You know, all these crazy things that everybody is just flocking to Jesus because of all these demonstrations of his power. God could do that. God has done that in times past, and he has the right to do whatever he wants. Revival could come in these ways. But isn't it more plausible? From this text, isn't it more reasonable to think that maybe the way that God truly wants to transform our families and truly wants to transform this community and truly wants to transform this world is not by those miraculous things, but it's by the example, the faithful application of sound doctrine in each one of our lives. That is the ordinary but just as powerful way that God is going to transform our world. Do you believe that? That's what this passage is calling us to believe. And let's pray, God, start with me. Let's pray that right now. Lord, it seems that this is the plain teaching of this text. Sound doctrine plus faithful application equals cultural transformation. That's the equation for transformation that's listed here. And so, Lord, would you use us? We feel so limited, so weak. Who are we? What can we possibly do? But it's not about us, Lord. It's about your power at work in our lives, transforming us for your glory and your honor. So Lord, we pray right here, right now, start with me. Start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.